0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we currently talk about whatever books we want. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm alone in the kitchen with an eggplant. Joining me is author and as much smoked salmon as you could possibly want, Ella Brice Bridger. Hi. Hi. Um, today we're talking about Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn, a much, much beloved sort of cult book, I would say. A cult food book. A I cult be- book. We could call it a cult book. Yeah. Because people haven't heard of it. Unless they have, in which case... And if the people that have are... There's, there's a famous phrase that Brian Eno said about... I think it was The Velvet Underground. And he said, 30 people bought The Velvet Underground's first album, but all of those people went on to form bands. And I think Laurie Colwyn and Home Cooking, you could say the same thing. Everyone who read Home Cooking went on to write a, a cookbook. This is very true, yes. Yeah. Um, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> hey.
2: Hi, yes. Um, my agent gave me this book as a signing present. I had never read it. Really?
0: Before. Yeah. I had assumed that this was like a formative part of your cookbook writing well, thing journey.
2: Sort of, in that I signed my deal with my age when I was twenty one. So mm. and I think at twenty one you're still young enough for things to be formative.
0: Yes. But, oh my god, I forget that. Yes, I was there. Even, even I forget how young we were. <laughs> we were so young, we yeah. were tiny
2: babies. We were young and being formed by things. So it wasn't part of how I learned to write about food really
0: mm-hmm.
2: but Daisy who is my beloved agent said that I needed
0: to read it she's like oh you and Laurie Colvin mm. are. are the you same and you are you are the same Yeah, we are the
2: same there are lines in here that I'm like oh, I wrote that
0: but I do think there's a kind of a non-linear influence going on in that I would think that when you first started cook, when you first started writing about food you were kind of looking to Nigella and Nigella had been looking to Laurie an extent so would you think that she's kind of a grandmother in a way influence wise to an extent to an extent i'm always
2: wary of talking about influences because i don't think i love nigella i think she's a genius Mm. and some of the way she writes recipes i think have influenced me and i think the beginning parts of how to eat influence me but i think that what the way i write Mm. or the way I try to write anyway, owes much more to fiction. And mm. I think probably it's actually more like that, in that Laurie Colwyn, Nigella and I are all coming from English people who have read a lot of English literature. Yes, and yes. And it comes down through the three of us in different ways. Yeah. So it's more like we're all just cousins. So
0: there's this... Uh, yeah. yeah, interestingly as well, um, there's a lot of references in home cooking to sort of children's literature and sort of like high teas and she's got a real fascination with the kind of English child literature that appears a lot in Midnight Chicken as well. Your book, which uh, people don't need to be told about because it was very, very successful and continues to fly off the shelves. Oh, it was. Yeah. It does. Please keep flying it. So before we get into anything properly, I'm going to do a little bit of light housekeeping, which Mm, is not something I do often on the podcast, because I really hate on podcasts when people talk too much about the business of having a podcast. I think it shatters the illusion.
2: Whereas I love it. But maybe that's because I'm very new to podcasts generally. Possibly.
0: I've been doing it for a while and I think I have I hear a lot of new people coming up being like, so everyone, we're on a podcast today. Here's my podcast. And I find it off-putting. So I try to avoid it. But nonetheless, here is the housekeeping notes. Um, So while this cheeky old pandemic has been going on. <laughs> um, cheeky little Panny d, Cheeky little Panny d, um, uh, I have sort of suspended normal service with the kind of various different guests coming in with romance novels that they love and instead it's just been you and me talking about the books that we just like some of them have been on sort of genre lots of them haven't been we've had a great time it's been a ride. I've loved it. And um oh, so too. in <laughs> Brad, Me too. I'm so I, glad. I have. too. have had a lovely time. To have brought you into podcasting because like I I just remember when we first did one you were you were so nervous coming in and now you're so confident and it's lovely to watch you blossom. I love to blossom as a part-time
2: co-host of Popular Podcast Sentimental Gallery. But
0: go on. Exactly. And so what we're going to do going forward is that I do want to um, kind of continue with the normal service in terms of um or restart the normal service as it were um of people coming and talking about romance they love but i also really enjoy doing this with you and ah, oh. and i think we should keep doing it um and so what we're going to do i've decided to do is that ella is going to be somewhat of a part-time co-host is the is the title we've settled on
2: a lovely title i'm gonna paint it over the door
0: <laughs> um and so um we're going to do sort of five episode seasons every now and then what I'll do is we're doing five episodes of this season, which will be mostly short books. We've decided that people are feeling a bit, like, knocked down by life at the moment. They need to be doing short books of 200 pages or fewer. We
2: need short successes. We need easy wins. Easy wins. We need things that you can pick up and have a nice time with. Nothing big. We're all bored of big books.
0: We're all bored of big books. We're all very feeble at the moment.
2: I can barely lift my wrists.
0: I can barely lift my wrists. So last week we did The Virgin Suicides. This week we're doing Home Cooking. In the works we also have Muriel Sparks, The Prime and Miss Jean Brody. Um, we're open to suggestions. Um, I'm also looking to pitch you Laurie Moores, who will run the Frog Hospital, but I have to check whether you'll like it first. Because Do that's you mean important. I have to borrow it from you? You have to borrow it, it from like me, it. read it, see if you like it, and then buy it. We'll buy I'm open coffee. to it. I like frogs. I don't like hospitals, but... <laughs> That's pretty. (laughs) Everyone should read who will run the frog hospital. It's so small and good. Um, And then, yeah, and then after this short season is finished, I'll take a break as usual, record some with some other guests, do that for a little while, take another break, and then you'll be back again. So you'll never be more than two months from your next sentimental garbage episode, listener. Which I hope you're very happy about. (laughs) I'm happy. I hope they're happy. We're all happy. Just thought it was important to give some structure because I think I've just been scattershotting episodes of people and they have no idea what's going to come next or why. Well, they should just be grateful. They should, <laughs> you should just be grateful. I do this for free. It makes almost no money.
2: Hey, but we do get to talk about ourselves and books. That's true. Whenever
0: we want. And every six months I get a cheque for a random sum of money, like £104. A lovely sum of money. A lovely sum of money. A dress in monsoon and a lunch. What a day that would be. What a day that would be. All right, I'm going to do a summary of home cooking um, now that we've finished with the housekeeping segment. Finished with housekeeping. Now, now I went to home cooking. That's the similarity. <laughs> Houses. Homes. Homes. Houses. Houses. Homes. Um, and really, I don't really have a proper plot summary because it's not. there's no plot. It's not a novel. It's very much a cookbook with some essays, but I'm going to try my best anyway. I don't think it's a cookbook. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, Laurie Colwyn was a novelist and food writer who sadly passed away in 1992. While many of her books are no longer in print in the UK, Home Cooking continues to be a cult favourite of cookbook writers, from Nigella Lawson to our very own Ella Bloody Risbridger. In this short book, comprised mainly of essays, very vague recipes and no colour photographs, Colwyn is fun, fun, forgiving and firm on the subject of food so mainly essays very vague recipes with very few measurements and no photographs and yet somehow this is a hit
2: it's a perfect book is the thing Mm -hmm. I think that's the sort of main the main thing I need to
0: say to people is the best book about food that has ever been written and why do you think that someone who reads so many books about food and owns so many and gets sent so many
2: what an enormous question (laughs) why do you think the best book is the best book um (gasps) so nice you know I don't want to simplify this and she's a very competent and beautiful writer but it's just so nice it is the nicest book in the world Mm. which makes it sound kind of toothless and anemic to say something is nice but I think we undervalue nice Mm. I think culturally we've been undervaluing nice we've been sleeping on nice
0: we've been sleeping on nice for a
2: very long time oh nice who wants to be nice It's like quite a lot of
0: people like
2: oh women you've been too
0: nice for too long now's
2: the time to get horrible
0: it's the classic thing of sort of the the miserabilism that pervades culture, isn't it? This thing of like... What a phrase. I'm so glad you said that on a recording. Miserable. It's actually a word that um, Gavin's been using a lot at home, particularly about the graphic artist Adrian tomeen, which I thought was very spicy and cultural of him to say. Gavin! I know, I know. Which I'm, I'm, I'm going to have him back on the podcast. He's a very good guest, but... Um, Gavin. Um I love but Gavin. this thing of like things being miserable, therefore being well, worthy because they're about misery, and we're living in a fairly miserable age, I would think. Where
2: I think we're living in a miserable age. Yeah. We were just talking before the podcast about a little life, and yes. how much I hate it because it is miserable, miserable, miserable. And I know people being miserable can reveal some of the eternal beauty of the human
0: condition, but I don't care. I want <laughs> things to be nice. Just want things to be nice, and it's also it's you know it's not an original thing to say, but it's so much harder. To make um, niceness feel meaty, do you mean? And meaningful. And meaningful, which it definitely does in this book.
2: Yes, it's, it's about the meaningfulness of everyday life, which is such an l- awful thing to say really, and I can't <laughs> believe I just said it. But it is. It's about, it's about having making small things big things. It's about making yeah. things be worthwhile, and obviously this is a thing that if you haven't read my cookbook, please pause this podcast. Buy it immediately. Run, don't walk. Run, don't walk. Buy it. That will be nice for me. I will get some money, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I'll be rich and happy and we'll all be nice. Um, (laughs) We'll all be nice. But yeah, my book is obviously very much, and I don't want this to turn into a my book Mm -hmm. podcast, because that would be a bad way to go about things. But my book is very much. Here is a small thing that will make you happy in a horrible world. And I feel very similarly about Laurie Colvin. Mm-hmm. Although she doesn't really talk about the horribleness of life. Although I think that essay about the homeless people, homeless women she volunteers with. Yeah. I really want to talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it depth.
0: in order first. So we, I, I sometimes I find that when I pick out bits from the middle of the book, I tend to rush from the middle to the end, and then I miss all, all the lovely beginnings. And I definitely don't want to do that with this book, because the beginning bits are my favourite bits of the whole thing. Um... And also, I mean, just the very first line of this book is absolutely perfect for the age we're currently in, which is, unlike some people who love to go out, I love to stay home. This may be caused by laziness, anxiety, or xenophobia, and in the days when my friends were happily travelling to Bolivia and Nepal, I was ashamed to admit that what I liked best was hanging around the house. I want to tell you at this
2: juncture that I recently wrote a feature, a very short feature for Waitrose magazine, Mm. about Laurie Colwyn. Oh, I wrote it in March. Yeah. I took as a sort of starting point this I love to stay home and wrote this is extremely relevant and will still be relevant. I wrote it for the June issue and Waitrose very optimistically said they thought it would date the essay and took it out. And
0: uh Narrator, it did not date it. <laughs> narrator, it
2: did not date it and we are still mostly indoors. Although now you are also allowed in my house. Yeah, I'm this sitting our, on your bed right now. This is our first podcast. We are distanced. Don't worry guys. Yeah. But... The first podcast where we've been in the same room. For a long time, yeah. It's very exciting. Welcome back to my bedroom. It's lovely. Caroline famously believes that you can't be best friends with someone unless you know what their bedroom's like. She said this maybe eight years ago, the first time she dragged me into her room to show me her room.
0: I think we're going to end up referencing that time period a lot because I I did do that and I do believe that, that you can't be best friends with someone unless you've been inside their bedroom I don't care about all of your rich online friendships. All of you have. I have them too. <laughs> but you're not best friends unless you've been in their bedroom, unless you've seen where they sleep, and you've sort of like half glanced the contents of their laundry basket. You just you just don't know them. And um, and roughly around that time, or probably a bit later. It's A few years later. A few think. years later. June two thousand and fifteen. Oh, I know. um you gave me this book for my birthday my birthday was actually in May but it took you a few months to get together I suppose
2: we were in that phase of giving each other large numbers of books yes
0: and we would what would we do is we would buy like secondhand books on Amazon that we loved for like 99p and then we would um, go through them and highlight them and write in the margins for the bits it's very romantic and sweet we did this for about two years and then we got like more busy (laughs) because it's very time intensive to do that for somebody like a stack of five books
2: five to ten of your favorite books underlining each part you love and explaining why it's so romantic and tender
0: so romantic so yeah you you probably ordered these books in may and then it took you a few weeks to well this um, one was really hard to get hold of yeah this is like a kind of older american edition, i think
2: it is Um, yeah they reprinted this one in i think 1988 they reprinted this in...
0: I think, by the, yeah, you, it might have even been out of print by the time you were buying it for me. I think that's a new version that you have in front of you. Uh,
2: it says it was reprinted in 2012. Maybe more Home
0: Cooking, which is the second book of her essays, was reprinted in 2015. Um, but on, on the front here you have, Darling Caroline, I know you don't cook, but if you ever did, start here. Happy birthday, Ella, June 2015. Which I think I find very, very precious. And also, I think, bad advice... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good advice. I don't think you should... Because you should, I, I, I do cook now a bit more than I did back then. Um, and I don't think I could cook from this book. I think it's too vague. I think some of the food sounds weird, but I still love it.
2: I th- look, I think you're right, obviously. Yeah. I think cooking from this book is a nightmare, but I don't mean cook the recipes from this book. I mean, read this book yes. to learn why you would want to cook. Why oh. cooking would be a thing that would fit into your life and how... Like, there's this essay about her making bread and she's like, I tried to make the first bread and it took all day and I got my friend to help me and we weren't allowed to do anything else and the bread was fine. It was bread.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was as good as, you know, anything from the shop.
2: And she tries like a couple more times and she's like, and the
0: second time was just bad. It was just bad bread. And no one liked it. Yeah. She actually talks about her failures much more than she talks about her successes.
2: Which was something I really wanted to do with Midnight Chicken was to talk more about failures. And yeah. we kind of settled on, as a page at the beginning, where the title of the page is Blue Soup. The title of the page is Blue Soup. Is Blue Soup. Um, what a mad sentence. <laughs> but I really wanted more recipes for things that hadn't had yeah. gone wrong. And... Generally, I kind of lost out on the vote of. Yeah. People don't want to read about where you've gone wrong.
0: I still think I they disagree. do. I
2: disagree. I still think they do. Because that's my favourite part of this book. Parts. I think it's important to acknowledge yeah. that cooking goes badly wrong for most people. I am
0: really good at cooking, guys. She's I'm really so good. good Believe the hype. I am
2: I am correctly hyped for my
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm appropriately fetid.
2: I am appropriately feted for my cooking and uh, it still goes wrong even with recipes yeah like Midnight Chicken the name of my book is Midnight Chicken I have made the title recipe Midnight Chicken Mm -hmm. literally thousands of times thousands of times and the other week I was cooking in someone else's kitchen and it was horrible no it wasn't horrible just wasn't what it's supposed to be it was fine it was Mm. a chicken
0: yeah Uh... I think like what you said at the beginning of this which is that this is why you would you would start read this book to I guess appropriately psychologically place cooking in your mind. Yes. Before you begin cooking. I think that is actually the best bit of advice I had to receive this book. This is how Except failure. Feels. Yeah, except this is that it's not going to be I think everybody knows it's not going to be like Angela. It's not going to be like Angel Slater. Everyone knows that. But nobody has a configure, if everyone's, if everyone's been cooked for their entire life by their very capable mothers and then they're, you know, as I was when you gave me this book, 25 and sort of still kind of living on half-frozen things and not really eating properly. I believe this was in the era of you sometimes eating lightly warmed microwave mash. I just love microwave
2: mash. Um am a pervert, Caroline. That's I'm a pervert.
0: Story. The things I have eaten, the things I have put in my body... It was also during the phase where, like, my idea of a treat was just a spoonful of jam and then a spoonful of peanut butter just put in my mouth at the same time.
2: (laughs) I love you, but why? Why Why are you so horrible? To be fair, uh, we've got this M&M's chocolate spread, crunchy M&M's chocolate spread. Oh, yum.
0: We just keep it in the fridge for eating with a spoon. Yeah, I think that's fine. It's so delicious, but it's very hard to find. I also think that about most sort of, like, um, toffee sauces that you find. Like, don't spoil it with ice cream or biscuits. I don't want ice
2: cream. It's too cold. Spoon. I want a spoon of treat. And I think that's fine. And I think Laurie Colwyn would
0: agree. Would agree. Although
2: she's got very... I would say the bits of this book that feel most dated to me, because it, broadly speaking, doesn't feel dated. It feels... Of a New York of of the past, yeah. in the
0: ca- same kind of way that Nora Ephron kind of does. Yeah, it's very hard not to compare it to Nora Ephron, which is h- difficult because so many things are compared to Nora Ephron. This genuinely but this merits genuinely is. the comparison yeah. because it's like oh. and they were peers in a sense. I they must so. have been. They must have been. I think yeah. so. I
2: don't really know enough about Times of Women. Times of Women. Um, well, actually, I was thinking about this because there's a. I want to talk about fish because it's my favorite essay in this book. is the one about fish. Mm-hmm. I love it more than anything. I think about it all the time. And Also, I've just read an essay by Nora Ephron, where she says, "Fish is no fun, bim bam, boom when <laughs> you're done with a piece of fish, which I do agree with, but then Laurie Coleman is very nice about fish, so yeah, anyway, this is a sort of tangent. The point is i I don't want to do down either woman with the comparison, yeah, because we're all really sick of we're all really sick of being compared to Nora Ephron we're all really you've sick been, this. Compared to Nora yeah. been compared to Nora Ephron I've been compared to Nora Ephron. This sounds like a humble brag, but it isn't because every because woman writer on the planet has, at this point, been told by somebody that yeah. they're going if to you, be. Yeah. If you're a bit writing like about F1.
0: contemporary women, then you will be compared to Nora Ephron. It's become a comparison that means next to nothing now. Um, like because it's like it's one of those things where I I, I think the same slightly about Helen Fielding um, who wrote Bridget Jones' Diary in that. Um, the thing that is common to Nora Ephron and Helen Fielding is that they were both journalists who were attached to sort of proper things before they became women's artists, if you know what I mean. Helen Fielding was like a like a proper correspondent who wrote for lots of important yeah. newspapers. And then she had the the kind of... The column of Bridget that then became the book of Bridget, and Nora Ephron was like linked to Carl Bernstein after she was married to him. She was a proper journalist, the youngest female journalist for Life Magazine. She had all these credentials, and I feel like the, the women who write about contemporary female life who are praised and feted are the ones who have super masculine credentials. Liz Gilbert is the same; like she was this like roving reporter for um, GQ for years, and I find that very interesting. That they're the ones that men look at, the ones with the male credentials.
2: That is interesting. Yeah.
0: And that's, why, no and that's why we all get... Yeah, we all get um,
2: compared to... Compared to women who did actually do something real before they just started writing about themselves, you self-absorbed women. Yeah, exactly. Ah, women's business.
0: <laughs> women's business. It's hey. so politicised. I think, you know, we've talked about it so many episodes of this podcast and I'll never be done talking about it, I think, because I just find it so frustrating and infuriating. But also interesting. But back to Lori. <laughs> back to Lori.
2: Um... Let's start, go back to where we were, which was Mm -hmm. to say we had got one sentence into the introduction. (laughs) One sentence, yes. I love this idea of staying home. And then she talks about going on holidays and only wanting to visit someone else's house and hang around poking into their cupboards. Yeah. My idea of bliss, a vacation at home, even if it wasn't my home. I could wake up in the morning, make the coffee and wander outside to pick apricots for breakfast. I could wander around the markets, figuring out that night's dinner. In foreign countries, I am drawn into grocery shops, supermarkets, and kitchen supply houses. This is me. I mm-hmm. am a nightmare to go on holiday with because I do not want to see a single sight. Ideally, I would like to yeah. spend the time forging a very tender relationship with, like, the butcher's grandmother. <laughs> I went to Rome about about five years ago, about the time that I... Oh, yeah, I remember Actually, that. Actually, I think I took this book to Rome. Um, I went to Rome. I have seen literally nothing of Rome at all. I found I was in a nice apartment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I made very nice friends with the butcher and his grandmother. Mm-hmm. I do not speak any Italian, but we did a lot of smiling and pointing. Mm-hmm. Lots of me, like, trying to draw pictures of the thing I hope to cook. I spent a lot of time looking at different vegetables in the market. It was perfect, but also when people are like, oh, what if we went to Barcelona? It's like, well, you would enjoy Barcelona. I yeah. will be in the apartment making friends <laughs> with a man who sells fish from a box. <laughs> which I I feel very validated by this
0: yeah I think
2: I feel very validated by Laurie, Laurie reading Laurie Cohen makes me feel like all my choices are validated I agree yes. with her so much and maybe if you don't agree with her it's a different vibe but for me a person yeah. who loves home cooking and home food and I don't love fancy restaurants very much I once did a podcast where they asked me what my favourite restaurant opening of the last year yeah. was, and
0: I was like, I do not know, I live in my house.
2: <laughs> yeah. I live in my house and I eat spaghetti.
0: I, I did like one of those like day in the life of newspaper things once or whatever, where somebody asked me my favourite restaurant, and I was like... The...
2: <laughs> I go to my friend Ella's house I go see yeah. what she's got?
0: <laughs> I once read a great tweet that said it was, um, I think about it all the time, which is the worst thing about having a favourite restaurant is going there for the third time. Isn't that so good? That isn't is it? awesome. It's like a Laurie Colwyn line, isn't it?
1: Imagine the
0: softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Speaking of restaurant food, I think Laurie is really, really good on um, home cooking versus restaurant food. In that she talks about like... Trying to make something really impressive and ornate and interesting at home for people, everyone's like, "Yeah, good, L- well done, you." And the people want that stuff in restaurants. They want to be wowed in restaurants, or they want to be comforted in a home.
2: The bit where she's trying to make the stuffing, and she says yes. to her sister, "I know what I'm going to. I'm I am going to stuff the turkey." And I says like, "Oh, good." And she's like, "With cornbread and pan- and polenta, cornbread and pancetta." Yeah. And her sister says, "I wonder what it will taste like." <laughs> And yeah. Laurie just says that is the worst thing a cook can hear is
0: I wonder what it will taste like.
2: Interesting. Yeah. How interesting? What was that?
0: Is it... How interesting, what was that? Um Powerful. And yeah, she talks about so many sort of like ambitious things that are also like really cheerfully very dated as well. Like the kind of things that like I was trying to think of, because she's living in this sort of very specific eighties and she's reflecting on the sort of sixties, seventies and eighties. Um, of like this world of very competitive home cooking that I don't think exists in the same way now or certainly doesn't exist in any way I've seen it of like people making very ornate dishes and sort of torturing each other with them.
2: Maybe it happens in other places. I think, how many dinner parties do we really go to? Because I say I have a lot of dinner parties but what I really mean is I make a pie and we sit on the sofa and eat the pie.
0: Yeah. Oh, I miss dinner parties. Same, same girl. Soon. Maybe Um, one day. But this is the kind of, like, very... I'm trying to to find exactly... It's very difficult to explain what you mean when you mean, like, 70s food. Okay, here's one. (laughs) Yam cakes with hot pepper and fermented black beans. You see, interestingly, I read that and thought, oh, this has come back round. Oh, really? So you're more aware of food trends than I am. I feel
2: that this thing of black bean... This feels very, like, a little bit fusion-y, a little bit... Using things up. I can see it on, uh, like, simple... What's it called? The food website. Kenzo Kenzo somebody Lopez. I can't remember. This is irrelevant to people who aren't in the food world. But there are certainly blogs where I'm like, I would read this yeah. recipe.
0: Food Creamed recipe cream spinach with jalapeno peppers. That, to me, sounds fucking disgusting. <laughs> it does, but actually, once you read it,
2: I think a lot of these things are about to come back round. What's interesting for me is the things she says are dated.
0: Yeah. Is what, that, does she, what does she say is dated?
2: Oh, I wish I'd written it down. This is the problem with reading things on paper instead of on Kindle. You can't just search.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what does she say is dated? I think there's a bit where she talks about like, people don't like bread, people don't like... Oh, the diets. Yes. We're on a no-fat
0: Yes, no fat, no salt. No fat, no salt diet, which is not a thing you hear about a lot now. Now it's no carb. Yes, that's so true. She has a special chapter um, just for um, picky eaters, and she kind of includes allergies and kosher meals, but she also just includes the sort of faddy eating that she's putting up with at the time of writing, which is 1988. So and it's all Yeah, salt eating, fat eating and stuff. And now, and obviously meat, which is, you know, always a thing, but um, what are the sort of... People come now with gluten allergies analogies vegans. Vegans, yeah. She doesn't even mention vegans yes, in this, does. I don't think. Oh, does she?
2: Vegetarians, for example, are enough to drive anyone crazy. Like Protestants, they come in a number of denominations. A very Caroline line, that. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Lacto-vegetarians crazy. will eat dairy, eggs, and usually fish. But some lacto-vegetarians will not eat fish. Vegans will not eat dairy product or eggs or fish. And some people say they are vegetarians when what they mean is that they do not eat red meat, leading you to realise that for some people, chicken is a vegetable. <laughs> And then she goes on to people who keep kosher. And then she goes on to people who can't eat salt. And those I think are very it's very interesting that
0: Allergies, vegetarians and vegans, kosher, and salt free diets. Yeah. Well that kind of I suppose, as you were saying, it feeds back into the the very New Yorkiness of the book, which is some of my favorite favourite bits. Um and and to me as well, the bits of this book that um capture the nuances of my twenties, more than any other book I've ever read about, like someone in their crazy twenties, is the sort of like specific dowdiness of having no money, tiny, tiny, tiny apartments, and like there's this bit where she's she's living in Greenwich Village in the I think probably the sixties and seventies. And she has this tiny room where she lives alone. She has a single bed. She has a little card table that she, um, you can, she can fit three people around it, four people around it. And then she does all her washing up in her little ensuite bathroom. And she has a little dish dryer that goes over her bath. And it's just so lovely. It's very Miss Honey, you know.
2: It's quite Miss Honey, but then she's trying to make spaghetti carbonara, and she hasn't realised. She only has two burners. Yes. Yeah. But she has to drain the spaghetti in the bathroom and then run it back to put the sauce on it. By which time the spaghetti's obviously gone a bit cold. Oh. It's just gluey, and she's trying to entertain her former boss and his wife. His wife, who kind of hates her anyway, and oh, and Laurie. she's just
0: sitting there. Like the wife is just sitting there in this like tiny little room, like you get you brought me here to eat this kind of thing, and it's it's a sort of very specific because when you think about like people being young and poor in their twenties, like. You either kind of conjure sort of a party girl image or you conjure kind of a, a with nail and eye sort of very masculine like chaos. But what you don't it's see much of is very small, cozy people being very, very tiny. Hard. Trying which, hard being which tiny.
2: For me, is our early twenties. Yeah, totally. It wasn't mine.
0: Yeah. Like our shared intersection
2: was sitting in my tiny flat. And it was so tiny. It was it was so tiny. I think people think I'm exaggerating when I talk about how small that kitchen yeah. was, but you could touch all four walls. Yeah. You just reached out and all the walls were there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it was like I remember um there was a time where people would come over a lot and they would like volunteer to clean and stuff very very um kindly and uh you would always be like, "Oh, they've They've thrown off the whole system because there were so few cupboards and things were like stacked and ordered in this like very like chaotic from the outside but actually highly ordered way.
2: The only I remember because the only way to get the plates out and to get a saucepan you had to move the plates forward. Yeah. Plates had to be slid to one side which meant moving all the glasses. Yeah. Oh god, there were no cupboards, there were no cupboards, no there was stuff. Everywhere.
0: things In- stuck to the walls as well. Like, oh, God, you spices. You stuck to the walls. Na-
2: spices nailed to the walls. <laughs> yes! There was nowhere else to put spices, and we had a lot of them because yeah. we lived over a Bangladeshi supermarket, and all the spices were so good and so cheap. Yeah. And I had never... We were so young. I was 19 when I moved into that flat. Yeah. And... I didn't really know how to make things organised or nice, but I was trying.
0: <laughs> yeah, and just like, and this is the bit where I, I just, I really see Laurie's, the whole chapters on her in Greenwich Village with her friends who she calls the Alices, because they're both called Alice. They're best friends and they're called Alice. <laughs> oh, there's this bit where you highlighted it for me and it just says next to it, as many of our highlights to each other do. It says is us." It,
2: one of the Alices began to eat the Bearnais sauce with a spoon. Yes, do you want to read it? I literally have it written. There you go, page? there it is. I had once enjoyed beef fondue. I felt it would be nice to replicate this dish for my friends. I served three sauces, two of which I made. One was tomato-based and the other was a kind of vinaigrette. The third was bernet's in a jar from the local delicatessen. While we waited, we ate up all the bread and butter. One of the Alice's began to eat the Bernays sauce with a spoon. The other Alice suggested we go out for dinner. Once in a while, we would dip a steak cube into the oil to see what happened. At first, we pulled out oil-covered steak. After a while, the steak turned faintly grey. Finally, I turned one of my burners on high and put the pot on the burner to get it started. Thereafter, we watched with interest as our steak cube sizzled madly and turned into little lumps of rubbery coal. Finally, I sautéed the remaining steak in a frying pan. We dumped the sauces on top and gobbled everything up.
0: Then we went to the local bar for hamburgers and french fries. Mm. This is so... That, to me, is everything. I, I feel like I, I might as well have been there because that was exactly how we lived our lives for so long. One of the long. Alice's began to eat the béarnaise sauce with a spoon. That's me.
2: I just remember, like, constantly just, like, hitting the back of your hands away from, like, <laughs> complex ingredients where I was trying to cook something complicated. Yeah.
0: I mean, just, like, grating pies it. It wasn't even that complicated. It. it was just, like,
2: spaghetti bolognese, but I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> I was 20.
0: Yeah.
2: And we were all quite
0: hungry all the time starving all the time and like yeah I remember just being so in awe because like nobody else I knew knew how to cook or or set or tried to really um and I tried really hard so you were so hard and you were like so much that's why like midnight chicken is still such a sentimental time for me. Are oh, we both going to cry? Maybe. But like, the, I remember when you made your mac and cheese, which I don't think made it into the book, but was on your blog. It had walnuts in it. And I remember being there being like, who thinks of this? and, like, and the Although it was the most delicious thing I've ever had in my entire life. And I, just, I remember the feeling of eating that off of a spoon from one a white tin enamel cup and just being like, this is the best. Just
2: making it... And never having the right crockery. That's the other thing I love about home cooking,
0: where she talks about... The things you don't need, as well. Oh my god, the
2: bit at the beginning where she's like, you can do most... You don't need a food processor, you just need some bits. Yeah. But when she's alone in the kitchen with an eggplant, which is what I
0: think this book was originally called, or like it's her most famous essay. Oh, really? It feels like some of these essays were probably serialised at some point, didn't they?
2: Oh, lots of them were in the paper. Okay. But yeah, she used to. I uncovered the eggplant, cooked it down, and ate it at my desk out of an old Meissen dish with my feet up on my wicker footrest, and like it's just a fancy dish that she just eats her lonely dinners out of, and I find that very charming, because we ate. When did I? get, When did we get matching plates in that flat?
0: Not until really you near know, no. the end. Y- your table had three legs. It did. And it had to a big as a book. Something else. Yeah. Well.
2: What we had was too many books, and they'd cr- collapse the wall shelves. So yeah. then, what we had to do was put all the books underneath. The books on the table to yeah. hold up the to shelves. hold up the
0: shelves. Yes, and so
2: nothing could be moved. No books could be moved. Yes, if you did want a book that was s- structural. Yeah, and you so had to get someone else to come and hold up the shelves for you, while you did a switcheroo.
0: Yes, and three people could sit at the table, but not four. And so if there was not another four, person no. over, you everyone had to eat off their laps on the couch.
2: And the couch was a fold-out couch. Yeah. For, like, sleeping on. Which, for some reason, which, when folded out, took up the entire floor
0: space. Yeah. Oh, like, I couldn't walk. Yeah. Very nice time. It's a very lovely time. And you have, like, parties in there. Like, you had a like, yearly curry party there. Like, 25, 25 people. 25 people,
2: yeah. There was no room.
0: Sitting on the floor, yeah. I've met some of my best friends on that floor. <laughs>
2: I just remember you and Tessa. Yeah, I met
0: Tessa for the first time properly on under that the floor. Christmas tree. Yeah,
2: and literally when we say under the Christmas sitting tree, under the Christmas shoulders tree, shoulders in. But I think that's very, very home cooking. And I'm just trying.
0: Just yeah, just just trying. having a go. Yeah, and 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 I think what people remember so much about this book as well is that yes, it's about the food, but it's also so much about the being in the kitchen, who's in the kitchen with you, who's talking to you while you're cooking who you're bringing it to, who who does and doesn't like this kind of thing, you know? And, yes. like, it's it's such a... And, like, that's the whole sort of um, MO of the book is, you know, one of, the, one of the delights of life is eating with friends, second to that is talking about eating, and for an unsurpassed double whammy, there is talking about eating while you're with friends. And so it's, like, it's not really so much... These, unlike most other cookbooks I think you'd find, they don't really... Uh, to correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert in cookbooks and I'm not, but like most of the meals in a cookbook exist in a kind of hermetically sealed bubble with maybe a nice forward being like, Well, I get in from such and such, I eat so and so. And it, uh, for me, whenever I fit through a cookbook, which is fairly rare, it's like, it feels like, okay, that was added later through with the help of some post its. But whereas this, none of these recipes, and I'm not really interested in most of them, they like, they um, don't feel like they exist in a hermetically sealed bubble away from the world. They, they just feel like part of the landscape of this like, life that you love being in with her and you love just being with her while she cooks and she's got this thing where like, like your Nora Ephron's, she does, she's very um, she's very um, like scrupulous, Like she's very definite about what she thinks is good and what she thinks isn't good but she, she's simultaneously, much more so than Nora Ephron would be, very forgiving And there's nothing she won't forgive in this book, you know?
2: On the back of mine, my edition, it says, Laurie Colin's food thoughts are like phone calls from a dear friend. Yeah. And that's how you you want a recipe to feel, or at least the way I try to write them and the way I try to write my own books is to feel like you're in the kitchen, like with the phone between like your ear and your shoulder being like, hang on, hang on, hang on. So I've done what now? And now I need to stir what? Yeah. My friend and yours, Kate Young, who Mm -hmm. has been on this podcast, I talk to her nearly every day while I'm cooking, Mm -hmm. and quite often, it is just a series of instructions, like, Kate, 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 I think it's going to split, I think it's going to split, what do I... And she's like, put the phone, put the phone on loudspeaker, on the table, you need both hands, and I'm like, but I don't want to, because then put it on the Mm -hmm. table, stir, 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 and like, we give each other these small instructions that feel very like being... And for me, that is very much the same experience as reading home cooking, Mm -hmm. is... Lots of discursive chat, lots of, well, here is a thing that is completely unrelated to food. It's like when she's talking about feeding the multitudes, which is an essay in this book about, as you can imagine, feeding lots of people at once. And she starts off talking about her parents. Each year, my assimilated parents gave a Christmas Eve buffet with turkey, ham, three hot dishes, salad, petit fours, fruitcake, champagne punch with peaches, eggnog and chocolate-covered orange peel with black caviar for an hors d'oeuvre. Which is amazing. Mm, I want to go to this brunch. Why am I not throwing Christmas Eve brunches? Mm -hmm. Why am I not throwing Christmas Eve brunches? This year, maybe. Well, it's because everyone leaves town. We need five more years to get everybody settled into London and staying. Anyway. And then, at college, she... And my friend Michelle Rice and I were paid cigarette money to make dozens of tuna fish and cheese sandwiches to feed young ladies after curfew. She talks about making industrial cans of yeah. tuna fish with huge industrial mayonnaise, which I think is very nice. And then feeding. And she sort of goes through all of these... All the times she's she fed food for food for lots of people. yeah. And the Olivieri Centre for Homes Oh, here's one of the things that's dated. It is now fashionable to run down the 60s when was the last time anyone ran down the 60s? Everyone loves yeah, the 60s. The yeah. 60s are the last time people were happy. <laughs> and um, But, you know, and she's talking about the homeless women that she volunteers with. Mm-hmm. They were and are the most surprising group of people I've ever encountered and not a single assumption can be made about them except that they were all living in a horrible way. And it's this kind of... Then you get this really three-page-long yeah. diversion on... Nothing similar could be said about them, except they were living in a horrible way. Yeah. It's such a brilliant... Brilliant and important thing to keep reminding yourself. Yeah. And you get these diversions, but discursions rather, not diversions. Um, You get these discursions on cooking and, you know, these ladies and what she did. And Mm -hmm. I think my absolute favourite part is, I got the brilliant idea to make an Irish dish called called Coulcanon, a mixture of spring onions, cabbage and mashed potatoes. The result was not a success, and one of my favourite ladies, who wore fuzzy sweaters, beads, and had a voice like Lauren Bacall, came up to me and said, "Lunch today, honey? A disaster."
0: <laughs> I love that as well, and like um, because I, what I love about this chapter, because a, a, bi- a big part of it is about her sort of her volunteering and generally hearing about anyone's volunteering is like, okay, here's a bit where you sort of subtly try to communicate what a great person you are, kind of thing. But it never becomes that. It's always just like very, um, I don't know, you never doubt her intentions in telling you. And she... She's telling
2: you it because it's a story that you want to know.
0: Yeah, totally. And it sort of maintains the sort of Humanity of like, yeah, she was cooking for like women who had nothing, but it doesn't mean that those women didn't have tastes, likes and dislikes. It's like, she brings that sort of humanity to it without pushing too hard off that door, you know? Yeah. Which I
2: really admire and really like. It's a bit about, one of the women was a person who was waiting for a transsexual operation and therefore was not allowed in either the men's or the women's shelter. She or he wearing m- mules
0: with pom-poms lived for a while here. Yeah.
2: And I just find it very interesting that... It's like, these are not new debates we're having about...
0: I also find that very, very interesting. Well, these are not
2: new things we're having about trans people. These are not, like... Yeah. It's like, well, we'll, what will happen if we start being nice to trans people? Well, people will be able to go to homeless shelters and not have to yeah. go to the one place in New York that will let them eat some yeah industrial spaghetti.
0: And, like, obviously, I think there's, like... um you could react to that paragraph and it was written in 1988 or some of these essays were printed even before that so I don't know when it was written Um, and like the way she says oh he or she um, you know could be viewed in a kind of a dead naming or a disrespectful lens but I think what Laurie Colwyn is looking at is just like this is is ridiculous and it is ridiculous the way that I had a really good conversation with you about this recently enough and um, when people talk about like People, when they talk about trans issues, they always hold up this straw man debate of what about the women's shelters? What about these women who are traumatised by penises or whatever and by by people who live in, in um, you know, assigned male-at-birth bodies? And the answer to that is not, let's decide who gets thrown on the street. The answer to that is, let's get more funding for places th- that to be rescue to vulnerable have... people, you know? And to be able to have discussions and to be like, I
2: just... I have never met a trans person who wouldn't have a conversation. Yeah. Who wouldn't... Every trans person I know is so thoughtful and respectful of They've other people. They've about trends.
0: everything. They're the smartest people you'll ever fucking meet. About...
2: Like, so smart about gender. So many... So, and I, yeah. I do think it's sort of important for us to have these conversations on the podcast. Because, as you know, I think a lot about kind of silences complicity yes. particularly in UK feminism at the moment and I know we're staying away from Laurie Colwyn but yeah. hey why not why not be, take take a... Why not take 20 seconds to make it clear that trans exclusive feminism is something I find personally extremely troubling very troubling and uh, I don't like it and I don't but think it's feminism I just hot, think it's a hard take <laughs> I think it's a bad take to tell people what they should do because of their bodies yeah I think we should not throw people on the streets. Yeah. Imagine that. But Hard same. Hard same. Anyway, I think Laurie Cohen's making the same point. Therefore was not allowed in either the men's or the women's
0: shelter. Yeah.
2: I feel like But as it's interesting that these are not new. Yeah, problems. This, yeah, this is
0: the conversation that people have been having. And I think in often it it's framed Singer. as being a new problem. And I don't know <clears> if, <throat> I think all that happens is that the subject goes out of vogue for a while and then it comes back.
2: But trans people continue to exist. Yes, and always the have.
0: whole time. Um, and I like I like about the chapter as well where she's like, you never feel too bad about not volunteering as much as Laurie Colwyn, because she says at some point she's like, and then I got pregnant and then I never went back and then after a while I started cooking at my kids', kid's school, very nice school. Yeah, and you know I just I just like how. She's just never going to make you feel bad about yourself, Laura Colwyn, even though she does very noble things like bakes her own bread and volunteers at shelters, I never feel like she's a better person than I am. No, because
2: she's not doing it all the time. She's not like, I'm a noble person who is...
0: Yeah. She just does what she does. She does what she does. I, I really, really love her bit towards the end where she talks about the value of bad meals. Like the ideological, philosophical value of bad meals. Let me try and find it. Is this Repulsive Dinners, a memoir? Repulsive Dinners, a memoir. And it ends with... It talks about all the horrible meals she's had and that she's cooked for people. Because because you are the better for your horrible meal. Fortified, uplifted and ready to face the myriad surprises and challenges in this most interesting and amazing of all possible worlds. And she has this thing where she um she comes home from a horrible meal... Where she, this stuff, it's it sounds so disgusting. It's like this kind of variation of like stargazy pie, which is that Cornish pie with the fish with the head sticking up, but it's done with squid. And she talks about just coming home and making potato rosti for herself. And she's got a little re- recipe basically for when you come home and you're knackered and you're sad because you had a horrible meal and you need something filling and buttery and delicious before you go to bed so you don't resent your hosts forever. And then they're just like this nice simple recipe for potato rosti. I
2: just love the line for this. As appears to be traditional with me, a large pizza was the real end of this grisly experience. (laughs) But every once in a while, an execrable meal... Execrable? I don't know how you pronounce that word. Excrable. Excrable. Meal drags on way past the closing times of most pizzerias. You straggle home starving, exhausted, abused in body and spirit. (laughs) Also, I love any recipe that starts with, take off your coat.
0: Take off your coat. Love it.
2: Things like chicken salad, which is the next next recipe in the book, which is why I've just jumped from uh, mm-hmm. horrible to Chicken Salad. No one eats chicken salad anymore.
0: I was thinking that. I was trying to think of the last time
2: I'd eaten the chicken salad. Oh, there's lots of mayonnaise in this book.
0: So much mayonnaise. And like lots of um, advice to make your own mayonnaise, which you, you never hear of people doing anymore.
2: We live in very different worlds. We live in different worlds. I live in worlds where the only mayonnaise that people talk about is, Oh, I made it myself. Oh, with a yolk and a drizzle. I forget about the
0: places where our lives separate. Only one. <laughs> Only one
2: What's happening here for the people listening at home is we're both now reading home cooking <laughs> reading silently I'll in cut company. The which is fine. But I think there's something very telling about a book where both of us have a copy of it in our hands yeah. and what we would ideally like to be
0: doing. Is just it's reading it's and sighing. Reading and sighing and being like, oh, do you remember? That oh, was nice. I love how there's two separate chapters on kitchen disasters. One's called Kitchen Horrors and one's called Disasters. And this bit I really like. My own greatest disasters have been the result of inexperience, overreaching, intimidation and self-absorption. <laughs> and the, <laughs> thing, the thing of like, bad cooking is as, as the result of like basically low self-esteem. Of like trying to impress people with things that are just ridiculous.
2: Um, I love this chapter because now that I'm more accomplished I feel that I am in a position to gauge my kitchen disasters and choose them carefully for my next I am either going to make circassian chicken, poached chicken blanketed with a walnut puree, or a chocolate jelly roll which my sister assures me is a snap to make. I have never cooked either of these things before, but instinct tells me that the possibilities for something going terribly wrong in either case are endless. (laughs) I love it! I can feel why both of these things can go wrong I can feel, I couldn't explain to you why they must go wrong, but I can feel it.
0: Well, she has an instinct for things that terri- are going to go terribly wrong, and she's going to do it anyway. It's just so nice. And like this thing of, um. And, as you said to me, we're back in 2015, the reason why this is a place to start is that because I think, I remember very, very clearly, I tried to bake a cake once many years ago. And I think I've told you about this cake many times, because I remember telling yeah. you on the day I made it, Thing I feel like I people I understand people who have clinical depression for the first time.
2: This <laughs> <laughs> is in the days where we mainly communicated by Facebook Messenger. Yes, yes, it
0: was. I remember the I remember it well. Yes, and um, I I wanted to make I was feeling kind of low and I wanted to make a really delicious nice thing and I was like, I'm going to make a red velvet cake because I love velvet cakes and then I went down to the shop and I bought like the most expensive cream cheese and all this great stuff and Maybe. then I did I couldn't find red food dye. But there was blue food dye. And I was like, oh, a blue velvet cake. Like Elvis. Cool. That's great. Blue suede shoes. Fantastic. Um, And then obviously not seeing that, like, what a red velvet cake is, is chocolate cake dyed red. And when you have a chocolate cake that you try to dye blue, it comes out slate grey. And so not only was it, like, not cooked all the way through, because I'm just very bad at baking in general, it was also gray and i'd spent all afternoon and 25 pounds on this whole experience and at the time i was earning maybe 16 grand a year and i was so upset
2: well you know what it's something i feel a real responsibility about when i'm writing recipes yeah it's this sense of and i don't it's something i have to kind of consciously remind myself of now now that i am a grown up who does a shop and has more money and mm. can just sometimes get a takeaway if it really goes wrong yeah right. The stakes are less high for me now. Yeah. And like, I'm pretty confident I can salvage most things. But I have to remember, and I this is the place where Midnight Chicken came from, that feeling of, well, that's the money. That's the money, yeah. That's the money and the food. This is the game. And I feel... It's why I get so cross when there are some... Some cooks and chefs whose recipes I think have not been really rigorously tested. Mm -hmm. When I see a recipe and I think, that can't possibly work, and why I respect so much the recipes that have been obviously tested to within an inch of their lives. Yeah. Because you are playing with people's lives. You're playing... You are
0: playing with people's lives. It's very well thought
2: You are uniquely privileged in the world of writers to be physically affecting what people are doing with their money and their time. Oh, my God. Both i am this way. I find it a huge responsibility.
0: Yeah.
2: Because, and it's why I try very hard to reply to people when they're like, this went wrong. Mm. Because I feel this sense of, you are trusting me to make this day okay. Yeah. You are trusting me to, with this thing that can completely ruin your day if it goes wrong. Completely
0: ruin your day, yeah. And
2: I, I said at the beginning of this podcast, I recently made this chicken that went, Mm-hmm. It was fine. It just wasn't midnight chicken. It was like, it was an okay roast chicken.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It wasn't that good. I, honestly, I was so sad. Yeah.
0: It I really had, makes I you have, so upset I have and made that
2: chicken one million times. I was cooking it for somebody who was in no doubt about my cooking skills. Mm-hmm. I am in no doubt about my cooking skills. It made, oh, as I say, I'm in a financial position to be like, fuck it, getting a takeaway. Mm-hmm. Who cares? But the actual tears in my eyes at the waste of time and yeah. effort
0: I'd been to Saints I had to put a mask on because this is the world now. And you, you feel like such a, a lesser person when you fuck up a meal that way. You feel like you're bad at it
2: everything. It yeah. And I I feel like that's why it's important to have people like Laurie Colburn and why I want to give it to everyone who's starting to cook. To say, Well, you won't believe how badly and often things yeah, go wrong.
0: How badly and how often, yes.
2: And why I feel this
0: big responsibility
2: when writing a recipe to test things over and over again. And to give, frankly, too much detail. Mm. My recipes are very detailed. In a way that sometimes now I'm like, why... So I've just read the audiobook for Midnight Chicken. Mm -hmm. And reading it now, it seems like, why have I bothered to spell this out? Why have I bothered to spell out how to chop this carrot? Yeah. And it's because... I wrote it from a place of having just learned to chop a carrot. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it from a place of getting a cookbook and being like, diced carrot, eh? I I guess it means to the the size of dice. (laughs) The
0: size of dice!
2: Does it need to be all square? Or just a... Is this a ruler job? Is this going to... Do I need a ruler and a scalpel or can yeah, I just. Yeah, this
0: is this is my big thing of like, and Laurie says this as well in the book of like this whole thing, this myth of if you can read, you can cook. Because like not not taking into account this thing of lots of cookbooks have a shorthand that is totally alien to people who don't cook every day. And it's like when it's like, I had water to cover. I'm like, what? How much though? Like, until Like, cover it, and then and then what? Like, that that whole... There's so many linguistic things where I was just... Cooking that I found so confusing, which is why the only person that's taught me how to cook is you. uh, I've loved teaching you how to cook. Um, It's been lovely. I feel like a much better person for it, but I don't think I would have been able to do it without the help of you.
2: Well, and you have to want to learn to cook, and you have to be taught to cook by somebody who wants to cook in the way you want to cook. Yes. So She talks in this about the loveliest scrambled eggs I have ever had were given to me by a not-crazy young man, an English man who insisted that scrambled eggs should be made in a double boiler. The result is a cross between a scrambled egg and a savoury custard and if you happen to have about 40 minutes of free time someday, it is certainly worth the effort. Stir as in boiled custard until you feel either that your arm is going to fall off or that you are going to start to scream uncontrollably. <laughs> It's perfect. It's so good. But, like, she acknowledges, if you have 40 minutes... Yeah, this is
0: a faff, and she's very quick quick to say, this is a faff, and don't bother if you can't be bothered. Yeah. Recipes are really hard. Recipes are very, very difficult. Yeah. I think that's what people, when people react badly to cookbooks, is because they presume a kind of an ease. And when you, when, like, when a very confident cookbook writer is like, just do this, this, and this, and then everything will be lovely, you do feel... I do think people often feel very judged by cookbooks in that way because they feel like they're, so, they're such a bad student, you know? It's that sort of bad, messy, scruffy person at the back of the class who's getting everything wrong and and, that so, and there's a possibility people. for
2: becoming actually messy and sticky and making yeah. your house messy and sticky. For no reason. There are such high stakes involved. Yeah. I, I know that's ridiculous to say about food, but they are high stakes. Most of the time, the high point of the day is one of the meals. Yeah. Most of the time, the thing, you're like, oh, but at least there was my delicious pret sandwich. Yeah. At least there was some tea and biscuits. At least there was my fancy four-course dinner. Although, four
0: courses... That's the other thing about this book that feels dated to me, mm. is the number of multiple-course dinners. Yes, people coming over for multiple-course dinners, yeah. Whereas now, it's like people come over for some crisps beforehand, and then Big Main, and then maybe a shop pot dessert.
2: Well, that's what interests me. I wonder whether... Readers, please write in. Mm. Whether in other places and in other social groups, there are still people cooking courses. big courses Yeah, for dinner. I find no joy in cooking multiple-course dinners. At all. I love to cook. I like cooking at most two courses.
0: Yeah.
2: I get no... I get nothing out of the idea of... Here is a four-course meal, of which I have had to make every course. Mm. It makes me feel
0: so tired,
2: and all I can think about is the washing up.
0: Yeah, it's insane. I can't imagine imagine anyone doing that outside of a restaurant. It's insane. Um, There's an amazing bit
2: where she's talking about... um, In the old days, women planned dinner parties by sitting down with the cook and discussing what might be nice to serve. The cook or the cook's servant did the shopping, the table was set by the scullery maid, the hostess's job was to dress well and smile, and the husband poured the room. Then, while the men smoked cigars in one room and the women gossiped in another, and the table was magically cleaned and everything was washed and put away. Nowadays, everyone works, and the hostess usually spends a few days on and off consulting with the cook, a replica of the hostess, at two o'clock in the morning when she can't sleep. The cook's servant, another twin to the hostess, does the shopping on the way to on the way home from work. And the butler, a double of the husband, buys the wine and some flowers. The cook and the butler rush home, set the table, start the meal. And just as they collapse exhausted with a glass of wine,
0: the guests arrive. <laughs> and like, I, I do get the feeling, and like, I know we've brought her up a lot already, but there is this thing in, similarly in Heartburn as well, where you do get the sense that, Particularly, this kind of New York nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties crowd of people were desperately cooking a huge amount and desperately trying to impress one another. Like, I do think that this is a, a very specific thing that has faded out of fashion. I'm trying to think of my parents had dinner parties. They definitely did. I did think. I think there was multiple courses. Mine
2: did. With the dinner, mine did have yeah. multiple courses, but they also had lots of people like. People back from the pub on like a Friday night. Like they would go to the pub with their friends mm-hmm. on a Friday or a Saturday night, and then like three or four couples would come back and they would eat a curry. Yeah. Like sometimes something else, but mostly they would eat a curry. Occasionally someone else would bring yeah. dessert. Their dinner parties where it's like the table is laid. Yeah. My mum is having a bath and she smells like Chanel number
0: no. five. Yeah, mum's wearing a black dress. <laughs> Is there anybody more beautiful than your mother when you're seven it's so amazing and she's wearing isn't perfume it? it makes you you're so in awe and so afraid because <laughs> you're like she's going to leave us forever why would she stay she's so glamorous <laughs> that's exactly how I remember thinking I'm just like wow wow she's amazing she's the and most she's...
2: beautiful person
0: I've ever and like that thing of we've talked about this a lot before but like that thing of when she comes back from somewhere and her hair smells all cold and like night and like perfume it's and like the best feeling in Do you know
2: what? Laura. I think this is a lovely segue into talking about so much of this book is about her young daughter, Yeah. which is so sad when you think that she died four years after this book was yeah, published. Yeah, so young, forty-eight. So young, but there is so much love there for her daughter. And when she's talking about her daughter eating the fish, and yeah. I, I will something I will never forget: my daughter's delighted yeah. expression, deli- expression of delight and surprise the first time she ate a
0: zucchini. Yeah, zucchini flowers as yeah, well. And it's the like... most delicious. And... and she talks about um, when you're, as you get older and your palate matures and then watching her daughter, like, taste like smoked salmon for the first time and, like, seeing her eyes light up and being like, oh, that's what I like when your palate is clean.
2: And then, yeah, and when she, she talks about eating this meal that made her laugh because it was so delicious. Oh. I've had meals like that. And it's always just like, how can this be? I ate an apple once been staying with Kate Young in the yeah. countryside. And she's like, this tastes like apples. <sighs> this tastes like an apple and there's one of my favorite sentences in all food writing which i'm going to read now Mm. you're going to listen i'm going to listen which is from the essay fish which i love and has been largely what we've been quoting from in this last bit of this podcast part of the experience of being a parent is the re-experiencing of your own childhood and as i watch my daughter taste her first this and that Which in New York City means our first shiitake mushroom, falafel, plate of hummus, tree ear, bamboo shoot or chocolate mousse. I remember back to that time when my palate was clear and unsophisticated. Everything was an adventure and the world was as fresh as a fish. Mm. The world was as fresh as a fish. And I think it's really interesting that we have spent most of this podcast talking about that time. Five to ten years ago. Mm -hmm. When we were kind of first in London and first trying things and trying yeah. to be trying to be these people that we are now. Yeah. And you know, obviously we're kind of continuing to evolve and things change all the time and every day something new happens. But basically we were trying to get here, right? Mm. And just cooking our things with our rubbish cooking and you just always I mean my cooking was cheese. rubbish.
0: Your cooking was always superb.
2: It was quite good. It was quite good. <laughs> but it was always there were a lot of pots and pans involved. Yeah. There was so much
0: butter. Yeah, so much butter. I just put butter in everything. I mean I always remember this one dessert that you made that was ripped up doughnuts and custards. I wrote about this in the book because it was the worst
2: it was my big culinary disaster. You ate it anyway. You oh Harry. yeah, me and Harry
0: ate it like Oh It, it was mad. It was but supposed it was to be quite a donut. It
2: wasn't it was horrible. It was supposed to be a donut bread and butter pudding, an idea I still think has legs.
0: <laughs> it's, Donuts, and what, what and it was just, just like a bag of donuts from Sainsbury's. They should ripped. have been
2: torn up and then the custard should have kind of soaked into them. Mm-hmm. What happened was it turned into sort of sweet scrambled egg. Yes. With old with donuts floating in it. And I wanted to put it in the bin, but Caroline,
0: didn't. You were so upset and then you you were like you could tell you were like almost sort of on the brink of crying and you were just like welling I up at such so a waste. Hard. But then me and Harry were just like, Well, we're having a great time. Harry Harris. Dingle, this podcast. Yeah, God, we've just we've just been friends for ages. We've all just been friends for ages and it's lovely. And um, I hope uh, everyone hasn't found this too self-indulgent, us talking about our friendship, but I hope it um, reminds everyone of their sort of like dowdy, try-hard 20s. Da- you know? The
2: dowdy 20s, the thing. where you're just trying to be a person.
0: Here's the thing, I've read a lot of books, a lot of great books about people who had very like sexy and adventurous 20s, and uh, got, I love them, they're great. But I, my, my late teens had a bit of sex and adventure. My early 20s were mostly being very poor, eating shit, eating shit clothes, wearing shit clothes, eating things that were too nice for, <laughs> for where I was in life.
2: Just sitting in that grubby little flat. Yeah. Always in the dowdy clothes. Being like, well, our sex and adventure years are behind us. We've left them behind in our late yeah. teens. And now in our early 20s. We
0: will try and make something nice. This is something I am obsessed with. That that period that you enter into in like age sort of like twenty to twenty four, when like all your sort of teen sex appeal, you lose faith in it completely, and you're sort of that that sort of like confidence you found as a, as a kind of a upper sixth sort of whatever, <laughs> and it's just kind of complete. And then you're just like interning or you're just assistant work or whatever, and all of your clothes are from TK Maxx, but like from. Like but bad TK Maxx, do you know what I mean? The weird
2: ranges. Weird range. Like always, we've got no wearing, taste.
0: All, all, here are the colours I wore emerald green, like dark burgundy. emerald green, burgundy, navy. Always like with weird print Jewel of, tones. Like, ju- and jewel tones. Why and were we wearing jewel tones? Just all, very, like, literally the things that w- a woman who was like organising like a Macmillan coffee morning would wear.
2: <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but if you're 23, it's weird. <laughs> It's baffling. It's a brief period in the lives yeah. of many young people where they just need to be grown up.
0: Yeah, but they, they overshoot the runway.
2: You're just trying to work out. But you're trying to work out what it means to be a grown up and what it yeah. means to have friends and what it means to be a person. And like she talks in this book about how people don't really learn to cook anymore because people, everyone has jobs. Yeah. And what that means is at some point in your late tw- teens or more realistically early 20s, You have to start trying and Mm. being like, what do grown-ups eat? What do we feed each other as grown-ups?
0: Yeah, because when you're a teenager, it's very much like, I I always think about this this as well, that meal, when you're a teenager, when you come home and that few hours before anybody else gets home, like your parents get home or whatever, and you make yourself your thing, do you know what I mean? Yours (laughs) was was horrible. (laughs) Mine was turkey rashers under the grill. Um, and then in a sandwich with we'll lots of ketchup.
2: I thought it was yours was pot noodle in a sandwich.
0: Oh, no, no, no. Pot, okay. No, them super noodles. Curry super noodles on a bagel with peanut butter, a toasted bagel with peanut butter. It's great. It's horrendous. <laughs> it's great. What was your I don't know. Because I just used
2: to get cheese bread on the way home. Cheese bread? Cheese bread. It's like a Lebanese thing.
0: Oh, right. And I grew up in Dubai, everyone.
2: <laughs> it was just like, it's the most delicious thing in the world. I think it's proper name. is like manakish, but it's like, imagine a pita that's kind of softer and pillowier. And on the top of it is this cheese. You can't get it in England, but it's kind of like a combination of, imagine halloumi, but it's mozzarella. Oh, wow. It's very salty and soft. And I used to put extra salt and pepper on it. And yeah. then it's folded in half. And then, if you're me, you microwave it in the
0: school microwave. <laughs>
2: Because you've, you've, you've got a microwave and a kettle, yeah, don't worry got about a microwave. It. You've got a microwave and a kettle in the, sick, in the common room. Don't even...
0: Well, only we can use it. Not only the... we can
2: use it, not anyone younger than us.
0: Perfect. Um, I think we should leave it there, because we've been talking for a long old time. You can cut it down. Oh, can... maybe you won't. Um, yeah, so we're going to be continuing with short books this series. We're also going to do one bonus episode on Scenes of Graphic Nature, which is my novel that is out now. Is out now? I mean, it's out well, when this episode goes out, it'll be oh. out. <laughs> oh, that's how time is. Ah, time. Um, so everyone, please buy that and read it so you can enjoy us talking about it. What, a, what fun. What, what fun! <laughs> and um, you know, this has uh, been a long advertisement for a midnight chicken as well as home cooking, so buy that too.
2: Please buy that. It's a long time since I've done a plug for Midnight Chicken. Um, yeah. Please do buy my book, Midnight Chicken. I hope you really like it.
0: You will. Bye. Bye. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space.